Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and fantasy in the future that wants to be your date for the spring formal. I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm the author of the Young Adult Unstoppable trilogy. The first two books are out now, and the third book, Promises Stronger Than Darkness, comes out in April. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist and a science fiction writer. And my forthcoming novel, The Terraformers, will be out in January. So you can pre-order it now if you're obsessed with terraforming or if you like flying moose. So today, we're going to talk about the more recent history of colonization. When I say recent, I mean in the last three, four hundred years, because I read a lot about archaeology. So, you know, The past can be quite distant for me. And so we're going to talk about that recent history and how it shaped Western fantasies of exploring strange new worlds and why these fantasies are bound up with the history of settler colonialism. And later in the show, we'll be talking to Nassim Jamnia about their new book, The Bruising of Kilwa, and their thoughts about decolonizing our epic fantasies. Also, on our audio extra next week, we'll be processing our feelings about She-Hulk and why we wish there would be more meta-superheroes. And by the way, did you know that this podcast is entirely independent and is funded by you, our listeners, through Patreon? That's right. If you become a patron, you're making this podcast happen. Plus, you get audio extras every other week where we explain even more about the nature of the universe. That's right. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel where we just hang out all the time. I'm in there right now. Me too. Think about it. All of that could be yours for just two or three bucks a month. Anything you give us goes right back into making our opinions even more correct. You can find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. Okay, let's get into it. when we look at the history of speculative fiction, we have to think about the fact that every culture has created their own speculative stories going back centuries. So here, we're really focusing on the works that Westerners tend to think of as the science fiction canon, because these were created mostly by white people during a period of European empire building in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And also kind of this phase in science fiction leads up to the rise of the United States as a global superpower. So my first question, with all that weighty history in mind, is how does this affect the way speculative fiction understands what it means to explore new worlds? Yeah, I feel like there are a couple of major ways that you see colonization influence, like the sort of the fabric of speculative fiction. First of all, there's a whole bunch of stories about exploring and settling other worlds, or in a fantasy story, you'd be exploring or settling other realms. Mm-hmm. And those borrow heavily from the real history of exploration and colonization on Earth and the myths that we told ourselves to justify that behavior. And secondly, There's a whole thread running through these science fiction classics of saying that the alternative to imperialism is chaos and barbarism and basically a new dark age, like what people used to believe had followed the the fall of the Roman Empire. Right. So we're talking about, it sounds like, two different tropes, one of which is about expanding the empire, how you kind of go out and explore and, and find people or planets to exploit or land to exploit. Mm -hmm. But the other is about maintaining empire, sort of keeping everything uh, calm and uh, well-maintained. So let's talk about the first one first. So obviously any story about first contact with aliens is probably drawing from a real history of first contact between different cultures on Earth. I guess I have always wondered how consciously science fiction writers are drawing on real history, especially earlier, like in the Golden Age? Oh, very consciously. It's something that they're definitely thinking about. And you have to remember, of course, that Western novels 
were a big deal at the same time right. as like golden age science fiction. You had all these novels about settling the actual frontier in the West of the United States, which mm-hmm. was basically part of the genocidal sweep of Europeans across the Americas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, also in case you needed more evidence, here's Isaac Asimov, the sort of, you know, ultimate grandmaster of science fiction, talking about this in a 1975 interview with Cyborgan. Uh, the entire history of mankind has been that of crossing the hilltop to see what's in the next valley. Mankind has been exploring the earth over thousands of years. Somehow, just because we have now explored the entire earth, even Antarctica and Greenland, it seems a shame to stultify this impulse of ours. And the next thing to explore is the moon and the planets. That's one thing. It's sort of an analogy from the past, an extrapolation forward. But then another thing, the environments on these other planets are made to order for our purposes. Mm -hmm. Strange environments, the possibility of new forms of life. Uh, This takes the place of stories in the old days about mysterious islands in the Pacific or hidden civilizations in uh, the Amazon Valley and so on. So... What you hear in that quote is Asimov basically just coming out and saying that stories about meeting aliens and exploring new planets are basically just those older stories about, you know, exploring parts of the planet Earth and meeting new civilizations on Earth, and they're just transposed to a whole new planet. Yeah, and I know that Ray Bradbury often said that the Martian Chronicles were very much based on what he had gleaned of the history of uh, white settlement in the West. Um, in the United States. The other thing that interests me is that there's this whole cluster of stories, especially kind of in early science fiction, about explorers going to worlds where civilization has fallen. That's the premise of Princess of Mars, which later became the terribly, um, that was terrible, but performed even more Terribly. No, don't say it. Oh, okay, John don't, Carter don't of Mars that, is what we're talking movie. about. It was actually kind that of a movie was fun actually... movie. But, I liked that movie. Okay. It was a movie that was unfairly attacked, I it think. It was, yeah. Anyway, the point is that John Carter of Mars, which was a giant flop, although I think both of us kind of enjoyed it. Like, anyway, but that's based on this early 20th century story, Princess of Mars, um, which is about basically how an explorer from Earth sort of magically transported to Mars. And basically the culture of Mars is kind of supposed to be like the late Roman Empire. It's kind of in a shambles. Their resources have been depleted. They're infighting. Um, They're fighting barbaric other creatures. So this kind of sets the stage for a lot of other stories about explorers finding planets with these quote-unquote fallen civilizations. And sometimes it takes the form of discovering an ancient alien technology, which is uh, front and center in the classic 1950s movie Forbidden Planet, where explorers come to a planet that has this giant techni- like this giant computer kind of under the surface, which can do a lot of things that they don't understand, one of which is manifest people's secret desires and secret feelings. So it's kind of like psychic technology. Anyway, uh, and no one knows who built it. And this is kind of verbatim taken from a white settler colonial myth, which you see in a lot of 19th century stories about Southeast Asia and the Americas, where European explorers would happen upon what they would call lost cities or lost civilizations. Um, The city of Angkor in Cambodia is a great example of that. A lot of the ancient Mayan cities were also similarly, quote unquote, discovered by white explorers. And the stories that would get told by these explorers are basically things like, oh, there once was a great civilization that fell. And then the people who we're meeting here now Um, the indigenous people, they're like some other barbaric group. They're not the people who built these things. This isn't their ancestors. This is just like in unrelated news, there's a bunch of people living here. And so that was a story that helped justify colonization because the idea was like, oh, these people who are here now can't appreciate or ever create their own civilization. And so we need to build one for them. And all the civilizations that existed are gone from this place. So one of the great 
sci-fi examples of a kind of lost city story, by the way. You and I were talking about this earlier, Charlie Jane, is Ringworld, which Ringworld is itself a kind of lost city. It's this ancient, incredible structure. Uh, It's a Dyson ring around a star. And the people who live on there have no idea who built it. They've all like fallen into barbarism. The ring itself is malfunctioning in a lot of different ways. And so as our characters explore this ring, they kind of come to realize that they're basically in a crumbling lost city. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that trope of like the the indigenous people who either didn't build this stuff or built it long, long, long ago, but now they've fallen into barbarism. Mm -hmm. It is sort of this idea that they need somebody to come along and bring civilization to them. And, you know, one of the common tropes in a lot of 20th century science fiction, including countless episodes of Star Trek and Doctor Who and other, you know, kind of episodic sci-fi things, is this trope of the cargo cult. In which explorers from Earth show up with our amazing technology and were worshipped as gods or the technology itself is viewed as being kind of mystical and having godlike powers and you Mm -hmm. see it constantly on a lot of these things like in classic trek you're always meeting like loincloth wearing natives who worship a giant lizard that's secretly an advanced computer or whatever (laughs) like anytime you have like natives worshiping something it's usually an an advanced computer or a crashed starship or you know something Mm -hmm. um and You know, this comes directly from the real-life claim, for example, that when Captain James Cook visited Hawaii, he was greeted by the natives as a god. They thought he was their god, Lono, and that, you know, that's why they ended up killing him. And of course, historian Gananath Abayasikara criticized this idea in a 1992 book that made a huge splash, and here's what he had to say about it. The crux of the issue is that when Cook went to Hawaii, the way that European scholars, some very distinguished ones, um, uh, present it is that he was treated as one of their gods, you see, mm-hmm. the god Lono, because he was called Lono. But then I point out, that's the title of the book, European Mythmaking in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. I, the whole thrust of the book is to show that this is a European myth. And it really is true that this idea that, you know, they greeted Captain Cook as a god is it itself a myth. It's a myth that the Europeans created to make ourselves feel powerful and awesome. Oh, people thought we were gods. That's so cool. Uh, Obviously, that means that we're so, you know, it kind of means that the indigenous people are are like children in a way, and that it's up to us to kind of educate them better. And so that justifies all kinds of just total barbaric treatment, including re-educating people away from their own cultures and just, you know, trying to destroy people's own societies because we can bring them something, quote-unquote, better. And, you know, in that interview that we just heard from, Obeya Sikara goes on to say that this is the same thing that you see with Columbus and Cortez. And it's, you know, it's part of how European colonizers made themselves feel you know, like they were doing something really important and amazing and not just going in and stealing people's shit, which is kind of what they were doing. Yeah, it's funny because what you're saying makes it really clear that colonization, the act of colonization kind of requires the colonizers to come up with science fiction stories to justify what they're doing. Yeah. So they're kind of writing these fantasy stories that are supposedly true. And then that's being taken up by science fiction and turned into more fictional stories. Whereas the reality was much more mundane. And when you were talking about cargo cults, it made me think of this really cool new book that I've been reading called The Archaeology of Refuge and Recourse. And it's by this archaeologist, Sim Schneider. And he's a professor, and he's also uh, a member of the Federated Indians of Grattan Rancheria. And so the book is focused on the coastal Miwok, who are a tribe here in Northern California. And what he talks about in the book is how these coastal folks throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries had a lot of salvage operations because so many ships crashed offshore from colonizers, like the Spanish and then later, you know, people from all over the place. Um, Their ships would crash and all of the goods would wash ashore. So this is the perfect foundation for a cargo cult, right? Like literally cargo is washing ashore. And so if what colonizers were claiming was true, you would imagine that these Miwok would be worshiping what they found. But no, 
all of the evidence that we have, and there's plenty of it, and Schneider talks about it in the book, is that even when a very ancient ship, there's actually strong archaeological evidence that a ship crashed off the coast in the late 16th century. It was from Manila, and it was full of trade goods from China. And all of this beautiful porcelain and different tools washed ashore. And the Miwok were like, oh, yeah, these are plates and tools. We're just going to use them as plates and tools. And then the ones that were broken up, they turned into jewelry and beads and things like that. So there was no worship. There was literally like, yep, it's cargo. And now it's ours. So <laughs> we're going to just use it. They didn't think it was for Finders gods. keepers. I know. They were like, yep, we know what boats are. We know what trade is. And we recognize that. And we're going to use this stuff because, you know, yeah, finders keepers. Yeah. And of course, a lot of 20th century speculative fiction does kind of feature the figure of the heroic anthropologist who visits and studies a, an, an alien culture, right? So yeah, we see this a lot in Ursula Le Guin's work, because uh, she often features these individual sort of anthropologist figures coming down to a planet. And this makes a lot of sense for Le Guin to be doing, because her father, Alfred Krober, was an anthropologist. He was a very esteemed scholar at UC Berkeley. And so at a very young age, Le Guin was exposed to the thinking of people like Margaret Mead, who was also an anthropologist who very famously in the 1920s popularized the idea of participant observation, which was intended to be a radical new way of doing anthropology where the anthropologist wouldn't just come and observe from the sidelines, but he or she would participate in the culture. And so Margaret Mead went down to Samoa and tried to join up into a bunch of the different groups that she met and participate in their rituals and their parties and learn about them from an insider perspective. And we see again and again Ursula Le Guin's characters doing that same thing in Left Hand of Darkness, classic example, a single kind of anthropologist comes down and tries to join one group and then joins another group and discovers that basically they're in the middle of a Cold War on this planet. And the thing that I would say about that is that these are still, this type of anthropology is still very much in a colonizer mode, because even if you are a participant observer, you're still in a kind of privileged position. That person, that observer, still is the one who gets to describe and explain the object of study. So this whole culture that allegedly they're participating in is still an object for them. It's something they're looking at and taking apart. And, you know, they're kind of putting themselves into a bit of a godlike position. It's, it's a humble god, but it's still they're the ones doing the evaluating. They're the ones doing the analysis. And so it's, like I said, it's it's kind of like colonization light. But I want to move on to talking about the other strand of colonization science fiction that we talked about at the beginning, where you said, you know, one of the things that people are really concerned about is the idea that empires protect us against chaos and that we need to maintain the empire. So how does that, how do we see that being reflected in science fiction? To bring it back to Asimov, the ultimate grandmaster, you see this <laughs> in his foundation books where, you know, the ma mathematician Hari Seldon realizes that the vast galactic empire is about to fall and that this will bring about 30,000 years of quote-unquote barbarism. And in the first book, Selden says that even if you admit that the empire is a bad thing, which is an admission he says he's not willing to make, quote, the state of anarchy that would follow its fall would be much worse, close quote. And Asimov here is drawing on Edward Gibbon, who was writing about the fall of the Roman Empire during the rise of the British Empire. And there's actually a great essay in The Atlantic by Zachary D. Carter about how Asimov, in turn, is sort of kind of subtweeting the rise of the American Empire as he writes his foundation books. Ah. Basically, these foundation books became popular in like the early 60s, just as the American Empire is on the rise, and allowed us to think about our own technocratic dominance as like a positive force for order and innovation, while we still remained in denial about whether it was actually an empire at all. 
Yeah, that is so interesting. I never thought about the like multi-layered imperial reflections going on there that it's like, it's about Rome, it's about England, it's about the United States. Um, it really makes me think about Dune, which comes out in the, the novels, come out in the 1960s, and then, of course, have been made and remade into movies uh, ever since and TV series. And those books, that story is very much about ancient empires layered on top of each other, these long dynasties of specialized groups and kind of nation states that are designed to maintain stability among the worlds so that they can keep the spice flowing. And the spice is basically, you know, space gasoline, space oil or whatever that's all being mined on the planet Arrakis, also known as Dune. You know, John Scalzi also plays with this in his Collapsing Empire books, which, I mean, they're literally called the Collapsing Empire because Scalzi, he always tells you what's happening, like, right on the tin. He's like, he's not holding anything back. He's like, yeah, no, this is literally about a Collapsing Empire. And it is similar somewhat to Dune in that it's an empire that depends on transit and um, their method of transit is being threatened because they have this sort of series of wormholes that connect the worlds together, just the way Spice connects the worlds together in Dune. It's, it's a really, I mean, it's a great series, and it really does, again, deal with what I think is this profound anxiety that you see in a ton of different science fiction stories and in American politics about what happens if the empire is destabilized. And oftentimes, if you're at the center of empire, the way we are in the United States, the fear is like really personal. It's like, what if we are no longer in charge of the empire? So it's like a fear about lack of stability, but a not so hidden fear that it's really about what if we aren't the top dog anymore? Yeah, and of course, Pax Britannica was followed pretty seamlessly by Pax Americana, which is what we're kind of at the tail end of now. And, you know, you see an undercurrent of this in all the discussions about the Ukraine war and all the other kind of situations around the world that are simmering right now that like, you know, is the U.S. still capable of kind of keeping the peace around the world? And if we're not, what does that mean? And yeah, it's not a simple question. It's not like a simple like, like they're clearly stability is good, but also from the standpoint of people on the ground living in the empire, is it really that stable? Are they really like having that great of a time um, yeah. living under the empire? Are there, do, they, do their lives feel that stable when the empire can swoop in and take all their shit at any time? Um, and if, as usual, there are counter narratives in, in speculative fiction, right? There's like, even as, you know, this is just like what we talked about in the Cars episode, anytime you have like a prevailing narrative, there are going to be counter narratives. And, you know, for example, we talked about Le Guin before, and one of Le Guin's most famous works is The Word for World is Forest, which is absolutely a, you know, a pretty brutal story against colonization. And she's always wrestling in those, you know, those stories about the Hainish civilization, about like the dangers of empire and the dangers of like, you know, systemizing oppression and so on and so forth. But, the, but there's more stuff, right? There's other kind of counter narratives about colonization in the kind of the history of science fiction, right? I mean, there's a ton. And of course, we're going to be talking really soon to Nassim, who's actually written uh, one of my favorite recent counter narratives. But I think, you know, the anti-imperialism in science fiction really does go all the way back to the beginning. H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds is a very self-consciously anti-imperialist novel written really at the height of British imperialism in the world. And he's doing something really simple. He's just flipping the script. He says, well, what if the aliens came and did to us what we, the British, have been doing to parts of Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Americas for hundreds of years. Like, what, what would happen? And of course, what he shows us when he flips the script is that means that creatures come down and rape the Earth, destroy our habitats, and kill us. And then you get, you know, a lot of echoes of that same kind of script flipping, you know, kind of following on from that. One of the most, I think famous kind of funny examples is uh, a short story called To Serve Man by Damon Knight, which became this Twilight Zone episode that like, I feel like everyone has seen. It's just so well known. And basically the premise is 
a group of aliens come down to Earth. They are super advanced. You know, they have interstellar travel and they're like, humans, we love you. Like, we just want to enlighten you and civilize you. And like, we even have like this holy book called To Serve Man. And it's all about how we're going to just like help you out and it's going to be awesome. So why don't a bunch of you come with us on our spaceships and come back to our homeworld and we're going to like totally teach you things. And, um, and then of course the, like, here's a spoiler for like a very old story. The punchline is somebody translates the book to serve man and it's a cookbook. So it's all about how they're pretending that they're going to civilize us and teach us things, but they're really going to eat us, which if you kind of take to serve man together with war of the worlds, it's a pretty amazing admission on the part of, you know, white settlers and colonizers that if you flip the script, it's basically like aliens wrecking our entire world and eating us. Like, that's what colonization is. And it's this little moment where you see the colonizer kind of admitting, like, oh, yeah, like, what we're doing is, like, incredibly horrific and destructive. And, like, we, we're destroying worlds. And, and that's, like, that's the beauty of science fiction, right, is it allows you to admit the truth a truth that's otherwise really taboo and that nobody wants to say out loud. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that one of the really influential stories of the 80s is The Space Traders by Derek Bell, yes. in which, you know, who was, you know, uh, a anti-racist activist and one of the kind of founders of the idea of critical race theory. And he wrote this story that was adapted for television in the 90s, where basically aliens show up and offer to give all this advanced technology and all these beautiful miracles to humanity if we will hand over all of our all of the black people on Earth, basically, to be taken away. And of course, uh, you know, you, you could probably guess how the story ends. It doesn't end well for black people. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by Nassim Jamnia, the author of The Bruising of Kilwa, who's going to talk to us about how some 21st century authors are working to decolonize these narratives altogether. So now we're so lucky to be joined by Nassim Jamnia, the author of the incredible new book, The Bruising of Kilwa, which is just like one of, I think, both of our favorite books of the fall. And so thanks for joining us, Nassim. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really, really delighted to be here that you asked me to come on. So yeah. So The Bruising of Kilwa is a pretty self-contained story about like a young healer and their family and their, their practice where they're dealing with this mysterious plague, but it's got this huge backdrop. It's got this huge kind of sweep of like a former empire from which this character is now a refugee and like kind of imperial colonial politics that go back hundreds of years and are just like really, really complicated. How did you come up with this like really like rich world building and backstory? And why is that important to have in this kind of small intimate story about medicine and, and blood magic? Yeah, so this is a world that I have been playing in for a while. Um, originally, I was mostly playing in Firuz's home, the main character Firuz's home country of Dilmun, uh, which is the product of, uh, like Kilwa itself, is, is a product of, of colonialization and empire building. And for, you know, so I originally I had started with this idea of what would Iran have looked like if the Muslim conquerors had never left, not kind of understanding the the difficulty in that question, because Iran is a Muslim majority country, we have been for three, 1300 years. Uh, there's also kind of the, the colonization that happened afterwards by the Mongols and the Turks, um, and our own history of, of empire, which is kind of the, the, the big thing that I touch upon in the book. But I this was originally kind of what where I had started where I was really interested in well, okay, what what could like my, my background, and my heritage have looked like if this this key thing hadn't happened where where a Persian dynasty reemerged on the throne, which, you know, like we will talk about thrones and empire to, to begin with. But so that was, you know, like originally kind of the, kind of the backdrop. And so when I was designing the 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 like sociopolitical stuff for, for Kilwa, I was drawing upon that and I was thinking about what is then the you know, the original the Sasanian Empire, not the historic Sasanian Empire. The Sasanians are the name of the version it group in my book. Uh, what what does that empire look like? How does it relate to its neighboring areas? And Kilwa is in the neighboring area of where this uh, empire, the seat of this empire was. And that, because I, you know, like I'm telling, this is a story about 
healers and it's about kind of everyday life, but it's also a story of migration and it's a story of forced migration. And if you're going to have forced migration, there has to be a reason, a reason behind it. And although the reason behind it isn't like a direct war that's happening, it is the result of uh, this like larger history of colonization and empire. So, you know, I, I think we'll probably get to talking about what does a story look like about migration that doesn't have this history. But so much of migration, especially when we think about it now, does have its roots in some sort of colonial or, or imperial enterprise, even if it's not colonialism the way we think about it, it might be like financial colonization, right? We see that with a lot of Latin American migrants coming to the United States. So, um, I, you know, it's something that I, I wanted that to be the political backdrop because that is a familiar political backdrop, even if the magic stuff is is like the dressing on it, right? It's magic. It's not really about that. Um, it is about that, but it's about really what you're, what, how you as, as an individual are moving through these larger political landscapes in your everyday life. Right. And so, I mean, it feels to me like there's been like a huge rise just in the last few years of like sort of decolonization narratives. And I'm thinking of like C.L. Clark, C.L. Polk, Shelley Parker Chan, R.F. Kwong. Do you feel like that's been like a huge trend recently? And what do you think is, is kind of behind that? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because I, it's a part of me is kind of like, oh, I wonder what took us this long to get to this point. Because, you know, like the, the wave of like when we think of political decolonization that happened after World War II. But, you know, so many I, I think it's kind of I think it is a reflection of where a lot of our societies are now, where, you know, there's it's been decades since technical re, you know decolonization. But a lot of the countries that that were left, you know, kind of dropped from their empires uh, weren't then given the tools to thrive as independent nations or as kind of their own individual governments. And and then, and so things have, have gone to hell in, in many respects for, for a lot of countries. And I think now it's been enough time. Oh my gosh. I, I would, of course, like growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s, I'm like, oh, World War II was like 60 years ago. It was not 60 years ago. It was <laughs> longer than that. But I think by now enough time has passed where it's like, okay, what are what, what were the consequences of these decisions that were being made? Like, can we, it's hard to judge like where an up, a new nation or a new country is going based on the first five or 10 or maybe even 15 years of, of their history. But now that there's been enough time where we can be like, okay, here's kind of the consequences of all the things that did and didn't happen. And also, co- you know, coinciding with publishing, I think, being more accepting of our voices of, you know, not only publishing like, you know, cishet, white, you know, like male voices. So that means that now we can kind of enter into the sphere to talk about what our, you know, cultural backgrounds are in relation to, to kind of colonialism stuff. So, the, so yeah, I, I don't know, you know, like I, I hope there is more on the rise. Certainly there are still, I think, stories that implicitly buy into the idea of, you know, like kingdoms being or monarchy being good or like empire doesn't have to be bad. But there does certainly seem to be a wave against that, especially from people who have had some, you know, their their um, ethnic origin of their, their, that state had been decolonized or colonized. Or, you know, in response to kind of recent, recent kind of demonstrations, like I think about the Blood Air trilogy uh, by my friend Amli Wen Zhao. And in the first, and it's a retelling of Anastasia, you know, it's a, it's a secondary world uh, YA fantasy. And it's about, you know, like the, the Anastasia character wants to get back her kingdom. And then she realizes there's, there's kind of the, the like the communist uh, equivalent forces who are like, no, we have to do, a, you know, we, we can't have monarchy. Monarchy is bad. And she's like, what? But then she comes to realize like, oh, wait, like all the problems that people have with this empire are inherently tied in with like my family's history. And it takes... I'm not I'm not sure whether Amelie started wanting to write that story at the beginning. And I think it's amazing that that's the story that she ended with. And I think a large part of that had to do with the demonstrations that were happening in Hong Kong, you know, and that kind of just being like, OK, what does now this relationship look like? So so I definitely think um, that's funny enough, like the Internet has has helped for all that. The Internet is a terrible place. The Internet has done a lot to kind of show this is what it looks like across the world in different parts of time, you know, in space, depending on, on what's going on. Um, and then allowing us to kind of think about that and have those conversations through our literature as well. So in the first half of this episode, we were talking a lot about sort of tropes in science fiction that reflect colonizers' points of view that are like sort of, if not pro-imperialist, they're kind of, you know, they sort of treat imperialism as like a fact of life. And that's just like how things are going to be. And I wonder if you see any tropes emerging in um, decolonization narratives and anti-imperialist narratives, because tropes obviously don't have to be 
a negative thing. Like you, a trope is just a theme or like a recurring idea. So like, what what do you see as being some of the the decolonization tropes? I see, I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about is like, they tend to be messy stories because that's, that's like the real, I mean, that's the reality of the human condition, but it's also the reality of like decolonization. You know, like we, we don't necessarily see like a good clear cut moral character or, you know, somebody who came from like a colonized background in the story necessarily always being the good guy. It's very obvious in, you know, like when, when you watch a Star War, like the Empire is bad. <laughs> you know, em- <laughs> Yeah. Fire bad. Everything else good. And and I think that a lot, you know, not that that's not also in, in decolonization narratives, but when you have an example of like the Poppy War trilogy where Rin is like not, I mean, she, she's a complex character. She's, a, you know, I think definition of morally gray at, at its finest where she does atrocious, terrible things. Um, and she's also trying to, you know, she's also coming from a legacy of colonization and of deep pain um, and of genocide. Mm-hmm. So... It's, you know, I, I, I do, and I, and I also thinking of, like, she who became the sun. You don't necessarily hate, like, the Mongol rulers. You know, the prince is, like, he's, he's, he's a good character um, to Oyoung, and then Oyoung is still, like, but I have to, you know, the, but my family, like, I have to think about what happened to my family. I have to think about, um, you know, what, what's happening moving forward. And these complications, I'm not sure, I mean... Every story is complicated, but they feel like they're a salient part of narratives that are pushing against kind of the imperial colonial reign of things. Just that like. Mm -hmm. So like morally gray characters are like kind of one of the hallmarks. I think so. And and that like not I mean, even more morally gray situations as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So it can be easy for for I mean, I'm trying to I mean, I can't even come up with like a specific example, but it's it's very easy I think if you're not having these conversations to buy into the like, well, the people who are upholding the law or whatever, they're necessarily doing a good thing when they see something bad is happening. And the, the easy flip of that is like, well, what if the other person was stealing a piece of bread because they were starving? And now this, <laughs> right? I mean, so, so yes. you know, it's, 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 but it's more complex. It's so much more complicated than that um, mm-hmm. on, on all sides. And of course, like I'm anti-law enforcement, but that's neither here, <laughs> neither, neither here nor there. Um, but it it's yeah so you know we're not only are we seeing morally great characters but we're also seeing that like life thing the the, the situations around uh a, the situations around situations are complicated and we don't necessarily have a clear cut answer or way through yeah yeah i think the other the other thing that we see a lot is stories building in the idea of a long history like you've done in your work and i think um we see that in broken earth which is like one of kind of the pioneering narratives where we understand that things are not just like unfolding in the present but there's this whole backstory of like how everybody was maybe on different sides at different points and so i think that adds to the messiness in a way that's very pleasing and like very um you know kind of mind expanding compared to the colonizer evil colonized good yeah and i wanted to jump in and say you know you mentioned oyang and and she who became the sun who's such a great character and i feel like that's something i've noticed of this this kind of this figure who turns up in a lot of these stories who has been adopted as a child by their kind of oppressors uh, by the imperial forces, and it also shows up in Babel by R.F. Kuang. The main character, Robin, is adopted by an English guy when he's a kid and is kind of remade into an Englishman and is kind of like civilized, quote-unquote, and re-educated to be like an English guy. And, you know, it turns up in The Unbroken by C.L. Clark. Uh, we had C.L. Clark on the, the podcast a while ago. And, like, these people who are kind of, like, taken from their families or, in often cases, orphaned and then raised by the empire and kind of molded into imperial citizens and kind of have a false consciousness often of like, no, the empire is really good. And I'm like, I'm part of civilization now. But then they start to realize, oh, wait, actually, no, the empire isn't really good. And the people who killed my family maybe are not my friends, actually. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah, not. <laughs> that's an interesting point. I mean, because we also see that in Broken Earth, right? With with the um, the origins are, are taken in by the people who are essentially oppressing them, right? So mm-hmm. I think, and, and that's that's not uncommon. I mean, you know, how, what it like? I think in you know, indigenous boarding houses are a great example of that, or people who. Um, have, you know, who've gone to, like, the U.S. border and been like, ah, yes, this small brown child, now I will adopt. Um, and kind of, like, family separations, uh, you know, overseas, not that 
that overseas adoptions is like inherently traumatic. Well, I'm sure it's actually inherently traumatic. It's not inherently uh, like a like a bad thing. But I but that happens in a lot of places, right? Where like, it, oh, this is a war torn country, and we must now save these children. It's like it's a related narrative. You know, I don't think all all narratives of decolonization have to be that way. But that is a nice way to put the political problems that are going on into a single human, and therefore make it like a uh, a conflict that even people outside of that can understand. Because oh, this is so personal. It becomes personal. There you go. There, that's, yeah, that's the word. It becomes very personal in a way that's just easy to to otherwise walk away from. Because it's all about decolonizing your own brain as well as decolonizing like a nation or a community. Um, and that is what those residential schools were all about in the United States. Was like, how do you colonize the brains of you know indigenous kids? Yeah, and and you know I think about like the fact that the British canon was used in different African countries as a colonizing force, you know, like, oh, you come and you get a European education and here is the European canon that you then consume. This is what it means to be like the height of civilization or, the, you know, the height of great work. And now you take those ideas and craft something that's so, so inherently cultural now then becomes colonized as well. So, yeah, I totally agree of the it's definitely a mind thing as well. So moving on to thinking again about kind of the larger field of decolonization stories, why why do you think it's so powerful to just be celebrating non-European culture in secondary worlds? Like, why is that such a, an important piece of this? So many, you know, like, I, I think for a lot of us, we haven't seen our cultures in secondary worlds. You know, for, for me personally, like, fantasy was my genre from a young age. I was fascinated by magic, and I was fascinated by these idea of, uh, of you know, this whole other world that we could build. A lot of those times, um, you know, I would, I would like, you know, my, my favorite trope, perhaps unsurprisingly growing up, was girl disguises her her gender to do the thing because only boys can do the thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then, surprise, she's actually a girl. But it's, you know, it's like uh, g- gender weirdness and and you know it's gender fuckery you know and and that was like I should have known I was trans when (laughs) those were my favorite (laughs) things growing up so you know so a lot of us and you know for for whatever reason enter into speculative fiction because it gives us something that we're not seeing in our daily lives um whether that's just something that we think is cool or there's something you know more more emotionally salient going on in our lives um and so we don't then we don't see our cultures or the times that we do see our cultures we're like wow so that was that was it, huh? That was that was the the way you decided to go. Like I, I think of like God bless her. Like I love Tamara Pierce. Her work has been some of the most influential work uh, on my own writing and my own upbringing. But uh, like the Bajir tribesmen in Tortal are like this vaguely Arab esque. You know, desert people, and there's nothing like. I mean, they're they're very like gender essentialist. Like, women are only allowed to do X, Y, or Z thing. Other than that, they're not necessarily. You know, she's she's not the worst offender for 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 people who are writing for for kids at at that time and who are alive and kicking now. Um, but like that doesn't feel great when those are the kind of the only visions that you have of ourselves. Any sort of representation is important because how are you going to imagine something different? So then now to be in a space where so many people are able to talk about their cultures from a place of authenticity and write those into secondary worlds um, or into speculative fiction where we haven't seen ourselves is just is really powerful. Even, you know, like I, I think the, the beauty of it is a lot of these narratives bring us narrative structures or forms or storytelling that we don't haven't been seeing. Of course, there are those that, that reproduce the same things that has happened. I think the, the more power, the, the thing that really like gets me going and in a good way is seeing the ways in which people have also brought in their cultural storytelling elements and not necessarily reproduce the same things that we, we've seen here, but with with a different cast of characters. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, again, like publishing has a long way to go, but just because it's now so much more open to our voices about there has been this this movement towards like it's important to see ourselves, but we can see ourselves in secondary worlds, too. It doesn't just have to be a primary world thing. You know, Western fantasy epics often seem to be bound up with the the question of nation building and empire building and who is going to sit on the throne and how we can you know, rule justly or whatever. And is there is it possible for us to imagine like a different model of fantasy epic? And what does an epic without colonialism and empire building actually look like? This is such a good question because I think it is possible. I I mean I think everything is possible in speculative fiction. That's like the beauty <laughs> of speculative is. fiction is that any of this stuff is possible. And so many of us are kind of writing reacting to you know either our, our histories and our backgrounds or prime you know things that are ha- current events. There are words for these things. Current events or both. So, you know, I think a lot of us are kind of caught up in the, like, what does nation state building look like? What does, you know, empire and uh, called by a different name look like in, in secondary worlds and fantasy? But I think it, 
I, I don't know what it looks like yet, but I think it's it's definitely possible because, again, spec- that's the beauty of speculative fiction. Because I think one, one there's the appealing reason of, like, you know, the rightful heir or, like, here's a sense, here's, like, the world order as we've known it has gone through these things. And there is, you know, truth to looking at our earthen human history and saying, well, empires have been around for a long time. But... You know, empires wasn't like the first thing that happened in human advancement, right? When human civilization started becoming a civilization as we understand it, it wasn't the first impulse. So if we can think of a way of like, what does it then mean if that impulse wasn't taken place? Like, you know, what what drove the first empires was like resource expansion, you know, for in, in the case of like my culture background, the Persians, it was like, oh, well, we're the kings, like... We are, we are the one, we are the one true king, you know? So like, what do I, I, but I think if we think, if we, if we do it from scratch where we, we, we think about human, like, here's how humans began. I think then we just have to build like a new, like evolution of history to get to whatever that secondary world is. So I totally think it's possible. I just like, this is something I, I think will, will take people to sit down and really think about it because this is something that we tend to be like, well, of course, there's going to be some sort of imperial m- motion. But I don't think it has to be. Like, what does it look like if we design a world such that humans from the get-go were like, okay, we are going to share all the resources that we get as a community. No one is inherently better than another. This person, each person has like a job that they're doing. Um, and that's somehow, that's all contributing to the community. And, you know, we rotate out jobs or, you know, so-and-so is not physically able to, or mentally able to... And, uh, by mentally able, I mean like emotionally. I don't sure. have to say anything about emotional, you know, intellectual disability or that, you know, like not able to do this. So let's here's other ways that yeah. we can incorporate every member of the community, no matter what, uh, what whatever their backgrounds are. And then I think then the conflicts come in in different forms, and that's that's amazing. I guess the one I mean this isn't quite the same, but. I know we've talked about Becky Chambers' Monk and Robot series, and the thing that's so beautiful about that is it's like a world that's figured figured out its shit. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's like they, they had the factory age, the robots left, and then the humans respected that the robots had become autonomous and left, and they're like, okay, half the world is not ours anymore. We're going to stick here, and, like, we're not in conflict with each other in terms of war. Like, we figure out... You know, our, our payment system is not based on payment, but of like, here is what the value of what you did for me. Now pass on that good karma to the rest of the community and they have a way to track that. I mean, like, that's the closest thing I can think of off the top of my head. But even that has a history of there is, you know, if if nothing else, the human impulse of like creating these robots to be over over robots before the robots became sentient. And what a beautiful story that is. I know. And I feel like in your work, like in Bruising of Kilwa, you've talked about how you kind of retold colonialist history without race. Um, So that's like another way to kind of play with the inputs and outputs of your colonial world building is, you know, either maybe you take out colonialism entirely or you take out one piece and you're like, okay, well, what does it look like if we take that out? Oh, it turns out we have other ways of developing caste systems. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because like race wasn't a thing until the European colonizers were like, okay, we need to have like another moral reason for what we're doing. Oh, hey, like, let's take this ancient trope of barbarians and and savage, you know, savages and barbarians and and the civilized, which incidentally, the Greeks used to describe the Persians, which is hilarious. Like that, that is, we are the OG, OG uncivilized. And uh, yeah, you know, like there's still, people will come up with different ways to have conflicts and to, to, as you said, like create castes, but it doesn't have to be in a way that centers like white supremacy um, or have to be a way where like physical features of race are then kind of the marker of your of your worth as a as a human um and i'm definitely trying to grapple with like how do i create a world where i i i don't want i mean you know i can't like realistically say there's no ethnic prejudice in this world because i think that would be untrue but i also really don't want that to be the driving factor of the empire that was in the background um because i think there's just as harmful ways, as opposed to kind of this overt ethnic supremacy, um, to do empire building. It's, it's still harmful. It's still an empire, you know. Yeah, I think that's really great because it is sort of po- it's allowing us to think about what the real harm is, and sort of saying like, yeah, there's many symptoms of this harm. White supremacy is one symptom, and it's really bad, and we need to work on getting rid of it. But like. Getting rid of that doesn't mean we get rid of the underlying problem, which is somebody taking power and extracting resources from someone else and not compensating them. I mean, that's like the that's like the most basic unit, I think, of of imperial conquest is like, I take your thing and give you nothing (laughs) Um, or I give you a shitty job. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. 
So I think my final question or our final question was to kind of do a quick thought experiment about what migration and cultural exchanges might look like without colonization. Like, do you have any like quick and dirty, like SF fantasy way of thinking about that and and what you would imagine that to be? Yeah, uh, the actual star by Monica Byrne is a good answer for that and for the future timeline. So granted, it's like the future of our world, so it has that world history baggage. But Mm -hmm. in the future timeline, humans are not meant to be uh, sanitary. They're meant to be migrating constantly, and there's way houses around the world that people stay at for different amounts of time. And they're constantly migrating um, and therefore have different roles in, in the communities that they come into every time. And I think that's an incredible way to hope for human history, that like rather than kind of being like, here is our land, here is our property, here is ours. Instead, it's this whole world is all of ours to share. And so the way that we do justice by that is through movement, through being involved in the community that we're in at the time, to honoring the fact that we shouldn't stay here and like over basically like overstay our welcome. But that also has a reciprocal relationship with the environment. So yeah, no, I, I definitely, definitely think that there is a way to write migration stories that doesn't have to be forced migration um, like colonialism tends to. And I highly recommend that book for it. Awesome. Yeah. So wrapping up, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm on the internet. So social media, I'm at Jamsternazi, mostly uh, Instagram and Twitter, although I apparently have a TikTok as well. And by apparently, I mean, I made one. Um, and my <laughs> my website is NassimWrites.com. I have a newsletter on there, which has a messy link, so I can't give it a nice, easy link. But yeah, I have a newsletter where I send it out twice a, twice a month on Tuesdays. So I'm awesome. awesome. Thank Yay, you so much. Thanks so much for yeah, coming. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. If you like what you heard, you can find us on any of the sites that podcasts are found of. And if you really like us, we'd appreciate it if you leave a review because that really helps people to find us. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect and on Twitter at OOACpod. Uh, We couldn't possibly do this without the incredibly heroic and astounding efforts of the wonderful Veronica Simonetti, our producer. And we're also super super grateful to Chris Palmer for the music and we're super grateful to everybody who supports us on Patreon. We're going to go tell you in Discord in five minutes how much we love you and the rest of you will be back in a couple weeks with another episode. Bye! Bye!